Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are. Welcome to this special virtual ebook launch event on COVID-19 and global food security. I'm Katarla Taylor, Events Manager at IFBRI, and I will moderate today's session. Thank you for joining this virtual event live, and thank you to those of you who are watching this recording. The coronavirus pandemic has sparked not only a health crisis, but also an economic crisis, which together pose a serious threat to food security, particularly in poorer countries. IFBRI's new book, COVID-19 and Global Food Security, brings together a groundbreaking series of IFBRI blog posts looking at the impacts of COVID-19 and the policy responses. IFBRI researchers and guest bloggers provide key insights and analysis on how the pandemic is affecting global poverty, food security and nutrition, food trade and supply chains, gender, employment, and a variety of policy interventions, as well as reflections on how we can use these lessons to better prepare for future pandemics. These pieces draw on a combination of conceptual arguments, global and country level simulation models, in-country surveys, case studies, and expert opinions. Together, they present a comprehensive picture of the current and potential impact of COVID-19 and the world's policy responses on global food and nutrition security. Our presenters today will share lessons learned and key issues we should consider looking forward. We are eager to hear from you. To participate in our Q&A session that will follow the presentations and panel discussion, please submit your questions on ifree.org or through our various Facebook social media channels, including Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfree on Twitter. We have an exciting program lined up for you, and I will now call on Johan Swinnen, IFRI's Director General and co-editor of today's book, to give the first keynote address. Thank you, Yo, and over to you for your remarks. Thank you very much, Katarla. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, um, everybody. It's a great pleasure for me uh, to be here today at this virtual event uh, with the launch of our book on COVID-19 and global uh, food security. I've edited this book together with uh, John McDermott and John and I have agreed to uh, share the presentation. So I will uh, do the first part and then he will cover the second part focusing on uh, the policy issues and the looking forward uh, issues. Afterwards, we have a panel of, of really great experts on this field and they will discuss what we have learned and what the set of questions and policy issues are for the future. I don't think, next slide please, I don't think I need to introduce COVID-19 to all of you because it's affected all of our lives. Uh, this slide, uh, this picture comes from the book and it basically summarizes both uh, important events over the past six months of how we got here from where we started in early 2020. And it also has two pictures on the evolving cases and the deaths related to uh, COVID-19. And as you see, um, something we all know, but still looking at the picture, it is striking. I mean, the speed of the process and the extent of the growth is really dramatic. It also shows that it's really in uh, March that things have taken off at the global level, and then it has gone very rapidly. It's also very uh, uncomfortable to see that the numbers which are here, which are very recent, are, are already a bit outdating, outdated because things move so fast. On 20 February, IFPRI published its first blog on uh, the impact of COVID-19 on food security. That blog was focused on, on China, where the uh, pandemic first started. 
Then later in March, we had a series of blogs looking at various aspects of uh, food security, nutrition, poverty effects, etc. And by now we have more than 50 blogs on the topic. This book is a selection and uh, of the blog, but it's also updated version of the blogs. We have eight sections, next slide please, and 30 chapters of, um, in this blog. So we have uh, uh, sections on food security, poverty and equality, nutrition, labor restrictions, trade, supply chains, gender policy responses and future issues. What is important, I think, from our perspective is that it's a collection of different methods that have been used in the box. We have basically, you're using uh, global models, we use country level models, we use case studies, some are predictions, some are conceptual arguments. And I think it's the, co the combination of the different methodologies that makes this book an important collection of works. I should also mention here that uh, several of the IFPRI researchers which have published chapters in the book have also introduced policy trackers where they keep track and they continue to keep track on differences on different policies that have been introduced in countries and the impacts of these policies. Several of the chapters in this book have by now been, uh, they are updated in the book, but there's also more elaborate working papers, sometimes already publications behind them and the book chapters link them in an updated way to this. For example, last uh, week there were two of the chapters in the books have been published now in more elaborate versions as chapters in Science and in The Lancet. So I would, before starting the presentation, I just want to uh, end by thanking all the authors who are, many of them are IFPRI uh, staff and researchers, but also several expert uh, writers from outside of IFPRI, and particularly also our communications department at IFPRI, which has really done a fantastic job, not just in uh, making this ebook possible, but also in helping with the blog series and the editing and all the events and virtual uh, activities around this. Let me now move to the presentation itself. Next slide, please. We know by now that uh, the impact of COVID on food and nutrition security is really a combination of, of two factors. One is a large economic recession and it's uh, major disruptions of the food systems. We already, we know now very well that the, the concentration of the disruptions is in the labor intensive parts of the supply chains of the food systems. And these are more important in developing countries than in rich countries where they are concentrated in uh, some areas, for example, in harvesting and, and meat processing, etc. We've seen very significant disruptions. Next slide, please. Here are some predictions from, uh, this is a chapter by David Laborde and colleagues, where they use their global models to estimate the impact on global poverty. And so they estimated that the impact under certain assumptions could uh, end up with 150 million people almost falling back in extreme poverty. The most of, most of these people, the majority of these people are based in Sub-Saharan Africa. The right panel um, is their predictions on what the impact is on global nutrition. And there you see that it is uh, consistent with economic theory that the recession or the significant declines in incomes will lead to a shift from uh, from uh, more nutritious food to less nutritious food, and particularly a growth in the consumption of staples and a reduction in the consumption of fruit and vegetables and animal products. Next slide, please. Here is some uh, results from our um, countries modeling teams from uh, various uh, <clears throat> people who have been involved at IFPRI and have looked at, we now have a whole series of country uh, models and estimates as well. And so here are examples of the impacts in terms of GDP and poverty 
on for Indonesia, Ghana, and Nigeria. These have been uh, recalculated, so they are for the same amount of duration. It's a month of lockdown, and we see very significant declines in income between 25% and almost 40% for a month. And the increase in, in the poverty headcount is also very large everywhere, going from uh, essentially from 12% to 16 percentage point. I mean, these are huge increases. Next slide, please. We know that um, by now that COVID-19 is not equal in the sense that it is not affecting everybody in the same way. It's actually affecting people in very different ways and particularly poor people are affected very negatively by COVID-19. Uh, their food and nutrition security is hurt more than that of rich countries for a number of reasons. One is they spend large share of their income on food. Their main production factor where they need to, the factor they need to use to get income is physical labor. And that's the factor which is most constrained by the COVID-19 restrictions. They also see more disruptions in their food value chains because they tend to be more labor intensive. And the public social and nutrition uh, programs which are more important for them are disrupted. They have less access to health services in general, and especially vulnerable among them are children, women, and uh, ex-migrants who cannot go to their work anymore. Next slide, please. Here are some data that come from our uh, recent surveys in a number of countries. These are from Ethiopia, and these data actually confirm what uh, we expected, which is that the poor are suffering stronger from income declines, and they're also suffering more negatively from nutrition effects. So for example, on the right-hand side, you see that there is the, there's a very significant decline in uh, the consumption of dairy product, which is everywhere, but particularly among the middle-income uh, and poorest consumers. These are data from, from urban areas in Ethiopia. Next slide, please. Women are especially vulnerable. I already mentioned that. And so, and that's because COVID-19 has a number of gendered impacts. They affect, um, that relates to income effects, to basically how uh, people, men and women can address some of the health requirements. It relates to how shocks affect them. And so some of these things are related, for example, to access of, to information, where clearly women have less access to information, for example, to di through digital technologies. Um, women's empowerment and children's schooling is also uh, can be very strongly affected. And we know, of course, that this has an impact, a dynamic impact affecting future female labor force participation. Uh, John will discuss more about policies, but I think the key point here, which is made in, in the two blogs on uh, the two chapters on gender, is that if this is the case, that also means that our policy reactions need to take that into account explicitly. So they should be uh, mindful of gender implications and we should design program which is targeted to women who may suffer more. Next slide, please. Here is data from uh, our modeling work in Myanmar. And so they are, Myanmar is suffering very heavily from reductions, both from international remittances and from uh, domestic remittances uh, due to COVID. And uh, you see that the impact in the rural areas is almost twice as strong as in the urban areas. And within the rural areas, it's particularly female-headed households, which are very negatively affected by this fall in remittances. Next slide, please. 
Uh, here are some uh, interesting results on how COVID-19 is having a very significant effect overall on the economy, but the impact differs quite significantly between different sectors of the economy. These are uh, data from our country models for Ethiopia and Myanmar, and both tell roughly the same story. That is that the uh, impact on agriculture is significant. So we're talking about a 5.2% decline, 14% decline, but compared to the other sector, it's uh, significantly less because industry and particularly services are affected much more than farming itself. Next slide, please. The next, this slide shows a similar type of story, but now looking within the agri-food system by itself. And there you see that it, within the agri-food system, we have a similar uh, distribution of, of impacts that the food services are particularly negatively affected with closing of many hotels, restaurants, etc. Agro-processing also, almost agro-processing is affecting roughly twice as much as agriculture in uh, both countries. Next slide, please. I, have, I will end with uh, a number of uh, slides uh, on uh, trade issues, which have been uh, important, but have been important in different ways. Early on, there was a lot of reactions by countries introducing, particularly by food exporting countries, in, introducing trade restriction by restrictions on export, export ban, export quotas. And uh, in reaction to that, there's been a fairly wide response uh, by uh, IFPRI research, but also by FAO, G20, WTO uh, representatives as well, which called for open trade to avoid the problems that we saw in the food crisis in 2007, 2008, where these export restraints actually complicated the problem by actually pushing up prices even further. And so the title of that chapter is called Trade Restrictions are the Worst Possible Response to Safeguard Food Security. And the combination of all these reactions actually led to the removal of, of several constraints. So the, the figure on the right hand shows that our, the, the, basically the blocks, sorry, the, the stocks of uh, staple crops was much, more, much higher now than it was in uh, 2008 and 2007 during the food price crisis. Let me also emphasize here that uh, the interventions by governments, the policy reactions are tracked by the IFRI trade policy tracker, which keeps going on and keeps track of all these interventions. Next slide, please. The, this slide refers to two chapters uh, focusing more specifically on African trade, both international trade and domestic trade. Uh, we know that in Africa, particularly the uh, COVID has led to the postponement of the African continental free trade area and to the closure of, of many of the country's borders. And so this is data from mid-March to uh, come 13 to the 24, which is really only 10 days. And you see that in these 10 days, almost uh, many of the countries are closing their borders in a very short period of time. And of course, these, the reasons for closing the borders was not for economic reasons or not protectionist reasons, it was for health reasons. But the impact, of course, is very significant, and particularly in the fresh uh, fruits and vegetables trade, and also in some of the livestock trade that is going on or can no longer go on. Also, inputs are strongly affected. The right um, <clears throat> list of items uh, refer to the chapter by Daniel Resnick, who looks at domestic trade in Africa, particularly the supply of food to the, to the citizens in Africa. And there she see that many uh, policies which have been introduced in response to COVID are having uh, a very significant impact on domestic trade. There's a wide variety of policies that have been introduced even within countries since often local governments are in charge of these policies. 
and often they overlap, they interact, so it's, it's a complex network of, of policy interventions. And there's a number of trends that she identifies. One is that there's major restriction on urban food trades and particularly on informal traders. But at the same time, we see widespread support for uh, contactless payments, so the move to e-commerce where possible, et cetera. Uh, also, on, in these cases, both uh, uh, Antoine Bouet, David Laborde, and their colleagues have introduced these, these uh, trade policy trackers. And uh, in terms of the domestic COVID-19 policy, uh, there we also keep track with our response portal. I think John will pay a little bit more on it. Next slide, please. Yes, this is my last slide. It's, um, it basically already makes trans, uh, transition to what uh, John will talk about. And it is what we see is that there's a lot of initiative, a lot of innovation, also creativity in the restructuring of trade, of supply chains, of food systems as a whole, in response to both the, the pandemic as such, the virus, but also to the policy interventions to restrict such as social distances, et cetera. Okay, I'm gonna leave the floor to, to John to go into greater deep greater depth in this. Thank you very much. Great, thank you so much, Yo, for your remarks. And as Yo indicated, our next keynote speaker is John McDermott, who is the director of the CGIAR Research Program on Agriculture for Nutrition and Health. And he will pick up where Yo left off. John? Thank you, Katarla, and thank you, Yo, and welcome everyone. Um, next slide, please. Now you can see that um, because COVID-19 has, has been a combination crisis with health and economics. Its widespread impacts are reflected by the multiple types of policy responses that governments have made, uh, some of which are listed here. Now, uh, low and middle income countries don't necessarily have the same financial resources of rich countries, but most of them have recognized the urgency of making policy responses and mobilized what resources they could immediately often with the help of international financial institutions. Uh, next slide. Now, um, most low and middle income countries applied variations of three important types of policies. Um, movement control for social distancing and public health responses like testing and contact tracing. Um, it's interesting that movement controls have varied from kind of minimal to severe. Um, and most countries have really had constraints on kind of testing um, and other things like hygiene measures where water limitations have, as highlighted in one of the chapters uh, are a very significant constraint. Um, the, um, on, we have a chapter looking at the kind of fiscal and financial policy responses and this is by Eugenio Diaz Bonilla and um, he really focuses on three areas of of financial policy responses. The first is how can governments um, provide essential goods and services such as foods and medicines, uh, which is sometimes challenging. Um, how do they provide domestic economic support to keep businesses and households moving uh, with necessary finances and, and debt moratoriums? And then how does the country handle its external finances in terms of exchange rates, trade and debt? Um, especially because many countries are struggling with lack of remittances and tourism and other important foreign exchange earners. And finally, a, a widespread policy response is on social safety nets. And Dan Gilligan uh, develops this further as something absolutely critical for households uh, to protect their assets, their food security. Um, now, 
uh, a lot of the responses we've seen where countries have really responded rapidly because they had existing programs that they could expand and scale out. And most of them have been pretty smart about um, kind of, scale, of relaxing them restrictions, moving quickly to expand things, both for economic benefits and for household security benefits. We provide examples in the book from India, which has an elaborate and important portfolio of safety nets and how those have been adapted and worked over time. Um, there's been multiple innovations in many countries uh, on social safety nets, and these are being tracked by Hugo Gentilini of the World Bank, and that's uh, worth having a look at for those of you interested. Next slide, please. Now, just because policies are adopted doesn't mean that they're going to be well implemented or effective. Um, and thus the great benefits of tracking policies, which is the objective of the COVID-19 policy response tracker that you see here. Now, some of the key tracking indicators that we're using include institutional leadership and coordination, as well as price stability and citizens' responses. Now, many countries have limited capacity to implement policies under ideal circumstances. And under the urgency of a pandemic, poor implementation leading to unintended consequences and negative citizen reactions are inevitable. Important details of gender empowerment and other inequities are frequently and easily overlooked and they need additional attention. Not surprisingly, negative consequences and citizen protests have been most associated so far with movement controls and health responses as in, in result of the emergency. Next slide, please. Now, the focus of this book is on food and nutrition security and Maximo Torero, in his chapter, linked together the multiple policy responses from production through business continuity, trade safety nets and others that countries are applying in their different circumstances to the combined supply and demand shock under COVID. He reflected the pragmatic approaches that policymakers need to take, avoiding simplistic fixes. Maximo also highlighted, as illustrated in this figure, a central food system objective of policymakers, growing jobs, many in small and medium enterprises, and how to support the long-term employment gains across food systems that are so important for development. Now I'd like to move to some of the issues that have arisen that are from the urgent response phase that we need to consider in terms of future preparedness and greater resilience. Next slide, please. Now, two chapters in the book focus on food system innovations. And these are built as illustrated from this simplified framework from the Committee of World Food Security on food system approaches and frameworks that we need to consider looking at the future. They reflect underlying principles, the need for systematic approaches, that food systems are shaped by demand, um, that there's a dominant role for the private sector, but there's an important need for public sector enabling and appropriate regulation if we're going to achieve the health, sustainability, and equity outcomes from food that we're all looking for. Now, the amazing pace of innovations outlined in some of the chapters from changes that were anticipated over three to five years to things happening in months or even weeks have been just tremendous 
Um, we've seen and out, data outline exciting innovations in digital technologies, processing, and institutional arrangements that cut across food system components. Now, as Joe described, the COVID-19 consequences on food systems are greatest for the poor, and inclusive innovations that combine humanitarian and development approaches and take care and looking at vulnerable groups, gender empowerment, and other key issues are fundamental to what we need. It's essential in this moving forward that we keep the health, sustainability, and equity outcomes clearly in sight as, in sight as we fundamentally rethink future food systems. Next slide. Now, uh, we need to remember that COVID-19 is a pandemic, and I'm actually an epidemiologist, and this thing has emerged and spread rapidly. It's not the first or even the worst pandemic, but it's been quite a few generations since the global population has experienced anything similar and of this impact. Now, uh, over my career in public health, there's been tremendous progress in testing, information systems, vaccine development, and other public health innovations but they've certainly proved insufficient in this case, and perhaps we had a false sense of complacency of how good we were at these things. Um, it's, it shouldn't be surprising though that we have novel pathogen emergence, particularly from animals to people, and this is frequent and it's really having an incredible uh, impact and spread. Um, and one of the, one of the uh, chapters emphasizes how this is changing in Africa with increasing densities of people and animals and increasing opportunities for novel pathogens to cross species. Now, it's not that these cross species uh, transitions haven't been happening for centuries. It's just that now they actually spill out from local villages across large landscapes. And we've seen this with HIV and with Ebola in recent years. And there's no doubt that we're really gonna have to up the game in terms of epidemic preparedness using one health approaches and reflecting a more joined up global rather than individual nation approach if we're going to solve these issues. Now the final slide, uh, next slide, um, is trying to bring together the different threat, threads in COVID. Um, as this has been so disruptive, how do we reconnect things? Now our health colleagues describe COVID-19 as an acute crisis exacerbating chronic underlying conditions. And this medical description does highlight the central role of inequality and the need for proactive empowerment of women and people left behind. Now, well, from a food systems perspective, we've looked at inclusion in more detail in the IFPRI 2020 Global Food Policy Report, uh, which also came out during the pandemic. Now, the fragilities exposed by COVID have stimulated much thought about more fundamental changes in how societies are organized and how food, health, social development, business, and other sectors work together. These issues should get greater attention as we move forwards towards recovery and building back. What might be a couple of entry points on the policy side for how we can move forward? One is at higher levels where we need cross-sectoral evidence of trade-offs to help policymakers pragmatically balance health, food, and social policy responses with a particular view to inclusion. The second, building on past lessons from responses to pandemics such as HIV AIDS, is the importance 
of community leadership and solutions in controlling transmission and empowering people to recover and to make sure these are, uh, lessons are shared widely. So let me close there. Um, over to you, Katarla. Great. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to you, Yo. At this time, we'll turn to our panel. We've got several great persons joining us to share their insights, and they include Michael Good, who is the Global Vice President of R&D Foods at Unilever, Perby Mehta, who is the Senior Advisor and Head of Agriculture at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Pranima Menon, who is the Senior Research Fellow at Free New Delhi, Apollos Nuafor, who is the Vice President for Policy and State Capability at the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, and Maximo Torero, who is the Chief Economist at the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. I will ask each of our panelists to respond to the same two questions from, the unique vantage, from their own unique vantage points. Uh, the first question for our panelists is asking them to take a look back. We're now several months into COVID-19, and we would be interested in learning what has surprised you or been the biggest lesson learned. And where appropriate, perhaps each of you could also reflect on the nature of the research that's been undertaken during this period, such as modeling, remote surveys, et cetera. Michael, let's start with you. So hello, everybody. Um, good to be here. Thanks, Katarla, for the intro. Um, now, for a global foods company, we've seen a number of very big shifts um, that were very fast. And, and quite unprecedented also in their magnitude. And I wanted to take out two of those that came as a surprise, some, some of it positive, some negative, and also lessons for what we need to do. Those two things are, number one, the resilience of the global food system, which actually, if you look back, held up remarkably well so far in this pandemic. And the second one is the importance of a healthy, nutritious diet and lifestyle. I'm going to expand a little bit on those. Some of the things were mentioned before already, but um, the pandemic has caused massive shifts in consumer demand. So people were staying at home, they were preparing themselves for an uncertain future, a lot of stockpiling going on. While at the same time, or, you know, the business in, in out of home channels, so restaurants, office canteens, and so on, had a massive decline foods company, you all of a sudden sitting on a quite dramatic shift about the types of products you need to make uh, and distribute to, uh, to your consumers and customers. Now, on top of that, uh, the countries have reacted very differently. And so you had border restrictions, import controls, and so on. So this has really been the focus of what we've been doing over the last months. Um, but given all of this, I think the global food system has actually shown that it is quite resilient and can deal with it. Of course, a lot of work going into this. And just as an example, we did introduce in my company roughly a thousand alternative materials or supplies and reformulated a good bit of the thousand into new products just to keep the supply going and to feed our nations. The second point I wanted to highlight seems an obvious one, but it actually was really brought to, to light in this crisis is the positive impact. There's different ways the virus can affect people. Some have a very mild effect, some have a very severe effect. Um, 
and also, um, you know, that, that we know that some people who are overweight or they're deficient in vitamins and micronutrients tend to, it's a statistical average, have a more severe outcome. What this has led to is a massive spike of searches on the internet for people looking for immune boosting, although that really doesn't exist, but something that helps them to keep healthier and in better. But we've seen uh, a big shift from into meat alternative products. Um, so where people move from meat into alternative proteins. And we've seen increases in products, vegan products, where people are not necessarily looking for the vegan element, but for the more healthy connotation that goes with these products. So these are the two things I would like to highlight as a sort of, you know, really a, a surprise, in some cases positive, in some cases more we need to do that have affected us. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Parvi, I'll put the same question to you. Uh, over the past months, what has surprised you or been the biggest lesson learned? Thank you, Kadarla, and congratulations to you, uh, Yo and um, uh, John, for uh, for the for the book launch. Um, interesting question, Katarla. Uh, my first uh, biggest shock and surprises is that it has been six months already. Didn't, uh, didn't even realize that. <laughs> and um, I think the, the pandemic, as John said, uh, which started as a, as a health crisis, has really surprised and shocked and uh, sort of shown a mirror in many ways to some of the age-old problems of, um, of the system uh, across the sectors, but especially the sectors which are on uh, sort of tenderhood. And, it, and it, it kind of came as a reminder that agriculture, after it's so much importance and everything still remains, especially in developing country, a sector on tender hooks. So I think it came as a, as a big reminder uh, of that. And the, the IMF's uh, uh, you know, projection of 5% uh, decline in the global GDP, it has, of course, uh, uh, had a huge impact overall, but especially on the on the poor and on the various aspects that this book highlights. Uh, for example, the household um, income, of course, but at the same time, household nutrition. Uh, within the context of household nutrition, I would like to also point out that, you know, it has brought a lot of people into a vicious cycle of, for, uh, you know, because of the immunity levels and, and the nutrition's impact on immunity levels, people's resilience and people's ability, especially the poor's uh, resilience and ability to, uh, to fight against this crisis, right? So it's a, it's a tightly linked uh, uh, agriculture and health uh, uh, crisis. And, uh, and uh, of course, overall people or especially smallholder farmers uh, ability to absorb shock. So, uh, there are several lessons really that uh, that comes across uh, uh, and uh, Michael you've uh, highlighted some let me add two more perhaps number one is towards the vulnerability right um, I think uh, you know countries after countries we have seen evidences now how vulnerable the system already was and you you know this is a stress that came on already a distressed system 
uh, especially the smallholder farmer-led agriculture system and supply chains, right? Uh, lockdown, for example, in a country like India, where, uh, you know, agriculture is such an important, uh, uh, you know, economic and livelihood uh, activity. Say, for example, only 11 days of supply chain disruption due to lockdown, um, also because it was a peak harvest season, just 11 days of disruption, which means just for 11 days, for example, uh, the markets were not operating, the farmers could not, for example, go or the public sector services did not work. Saw distress sale among farmer to about 48%, right? It saw about 60% less price realization in many, many commodities. It just shows that the buffer or the absorption, risk absorption capacity is so very limited and so very dependent on various factors. And that's, that's mainly because of various reasons. But one is the dependence on public sector policies, right? It, it again highlighted, you know, poorer the farmer, their dependence on public sector policies are higher. And therefore, the moment that breaks down, it really takes them into a vicious uh, cycle. And the second one also is farmers as an individual's uh, absorption capacity. For example, in India, uh, you know, holding capacity is less than 6%, which means the moment the crop, especially a perishable commodity, including livestock, uh, is harvested, it has to be sold immediately uh, because there is no capacity to hold on to that. And therefore, a lot of the sale gets into distress sale. And the moment that that disruption happens, even if it is in some commodities case, uh, just for a few hours, it takes them into a, into a very big uh, uh, sort of distress uh, situation. And the second was, uh, it really highlighted and a huge lesson learned was the vulnerability of certain commodities. Huge difference between how the supply chains between staple crops, for example, which is often also procured by public sector, and the uh, diversified commodity, which, by the way, would be so important both for nutrition and for income of the farmer. Diversified commodity farmers and the supply chain was much more found to be much more uh, vulnerable. So I think, uh, you know, there are a lot of those lessons, but one very quick uh, positive lesson from around the world is also the resilience and response. And which is, you know, today about 117 countries have rolled out social protection schemes, which has agriculture uh, as part of that. And very interestingly, at least 70% of the country policies, COVID response policies across the world have taken a longer term resilience view. So it, you know, uh, people basically did not waste the crisis. So I think I think there are there are some very interesting um, lessons that come out of people's uh, uh, sort of ability to to respond back uh, as well. Thank you so much, Parvi. Uh, Pranima, over to you. Uh, thank you, Katarla, and thanks for being here. And again, congratulations to uh, the editor's team and everyone who's brought this book together. Um, so let me speak from the perspective of um, nutrition and, and the nutrition community broadly um, and what the last six months has, has meant. Um, you know, we've seen previous situations where there's been one crisis or the other. Um, 
and the impacts of that on diets and malnutrition have been uh, substantial in different places, whether you look at you know, food, food system or food security challenges that crop up seasonally or you know, health system shocks. Um, one of the things that I think our community realized um, as the pandemic was unfolding and the policy responses to it were unfolding was that this uh, was a crisis that was affecting the multiple systems that affect uh, diets and, um, and malnutrition. And, um, you know, so we, um, you know, I think we, we recognized that there were these uh, complex uh, pathways, firstly. Um, almost everything that affects malnutrition has been affected by, by the crisis. Um, and then there's been uh, modeling work, for example, that suggests that, um, you know, there's going to be some pretty dramatic effects um, on, on malnutrition, right? So that's one. Second is there's been alongside that in the last six, six, six months, um, there have been, I'm going to call it dipstick. It's not really a dipstick, but what I mean by that is that there's been uh, small bodies of research, but from around the world and related to these different pathways, whether it's the food system, whether it's the economic pathways, whether it's the uh, disruption to health services, or whether it's sort of gender-related pathways that are telling us that those pathways that we uh, were worried about, those pathways are starting to play out. Um, and you know what we don't know yet, of course, is that what is what is the true impact of that on the ground, on the levels of malnutrition, or on the on the quality of the diets. Um, and then the third thing that we've seen is you know exactly I think what Purvi said and. Uh, you know, in a sense, I have to say I'm I'm also pleasantly surprised by that, by the the nature and the speed uh, of the different types of policy responses. So I think broadly, the policy community realized that this was a crisis unlike any other, and um, the policy community was putting together um, a range of different types of policies. So people working in agriculture were working on those. There were you know social safety nets being rolled out people working in health trying to figure out, you know, how on earth to preserve essential maternal and child health services, for example, while still responding to the pandemic. But all of that was happening. Um, and then last but not least, really importantly for the nutrition community, the, and I, I'm, I'm gonna say entire, but a very large number of people, five, over 500 of us came together in a movement that we are calling the Stand Together for Nutrition movement. Uh, to basically put our heads together and say we need to attack and, and sort of help to tackle this challenge uh, together, uh, you know, not as individuals, not as individual organizations. And so I'm, you know, I'm really proud about that because the last thing you want in the context of a pandemic like this is to have dissonance within uh, academic communities that are, that are connected to, to policy. Um, so I think that's where we are right now. There's you know, a lot of things to worry about, uh, but there's also um, things to be thankful for and, and things to be a little optimistic uh, about in terms of um, you know, what we are trying to do together uh, to help resolve some of the challenges. And I'll, I'll come back to some, some of that uh, in the second round. Thank you. Great, thank you so much, Purnima. Um, Apollos, over to you. Thank you. Um, and I think, first of all, I would like to say, uh, um, you know, congratulations to the IFPRI team uh, for the launch of the book. I did read, um, um, you know, uh, through some of the chapters and I thought, you know, um, it provides, you know, very excellent thought leadership 
that we could use to further research, you know, as well as learn from, uh, particularly the, the analytics. I think, first of all, just to note that, you know, what we're learning um, is that, uh, I mean, looking back, of course, at the last um, uh, six to seven months is that we didn't seem to appreciate the interconnectedness of systems, right? Um, uh, John was saying that, you know, the global food systems didn't seem to be affected so much, which is very correct. But the truth is, um, the, the, the other systems that are connected to the food systems, you know, are having an impact on, on the food systems across, particularly, you know, here in the continent where I work. Um, so um, we, we began to see that in some countries, for example, they, they employ, you know, um, agriculture, you know, caters for about 49.6%, you know, of, um, of, of the labor force. But with the pandemic, we saw that that entire population practically lost their jobs, you know, uh, and that then had an impact on, on other systems like, you know, uh, uh, the food systems itself, the health systems, you know, so that that sort of exposed countries to the levels of fragility that you know um, that were were sort of hidden uh, before the crisis, you know, uh, before the pandemic um, took its toll on countries. Uh, and I think that's what we need to understand: how how do we deal with the fact that systems are interconnected, and that dealing uh, a failure of one system will actually lead to the failure or result in the failure of another. You know, uh, so so as much as we're looking at the agricultural systems, the food systems, you know, and all that, it's uh, the, the fact that uh, uh, the pandemic also exposed that you know um, health systems still remain fragile. It's also ha having an impact on on other systems, and you know, um, uh, you know, so, sort of ex escalating the impact, particularly on the poor, you know, uh, and marginalized. Uh, a second thing is around data. Um, Looking back, you know, in the last six months, you know, we're struggling with data, uh, not because data didn't exist, but because quite a, long, a, a lot of the data that were being used for planning and decision making were actually outdated in a number of cases. And in some cases, you couldn't validate them. So responses so far have not proved to be effective because the data used for planning responses, you know, have been, uh, uh, were, were, were actually flawed. And that had an impact on sort of some of the policy decisions that were being made, you know, uh, across. And you would you would recognize that some of those policy decisions were, were knee-jerk uh, decisions that were made as a result to to actually protect, you know, um, uh, 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 the, the the population, but also to ensure that you know the spread was not going to increase. But in the long run, it's also had an impact, you know, um, uh, on 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 a on people who are hungry, increasing the hunger pockets, as well as you know having a, a broader economic impact um, uh, on this country. So, for example, um, uh, if free policy tracker, which you know um, you know we 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 very much appreciate, uh, if you look at the fact that in in some of the countries where uh, because for us in Agra we worked with IFPRI in looking about in looking at about five of the countries so far, um, and what we saw um, within the last uh, six months is that you, 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 a lot of these policies were actually an, having an adverse impact on these countries, on trade, on market systems, you know, uh, and uh, uh, the functionality, the functionality of supply chains, you know. So 
these these issues you know have in turn resulted in sort of uh, escalating uh, the crisis but also uh, uh, having an impact on on issues around post harvest losses the smallholder farmer the nutrition of children as well as you know uh, uh, increasing the the levels of debt that countries are beginning to incur um, as as a result of this crisis so I, I think you know those are some of the key learnings uh, that um, we, we have seen uh, in the last six to seven months. Great. Thank you, Apollos. And Maximo, I'll wrap up the first question with you. What has surprised you or been the biggest lessons learned? Uh, thank you very much, Katarla. And, and I have two, two surprises or lessons also. The first one is that we confuse the COVID-19 pandemic with an Ebola situation. We thought that by isolating the, the cases and the health cases, we will resolve the problem. And as a result of that, we only focus on the health part. And we forgot that we live in a system and there were other sectors that will be immediately affected by the policy implemented of the lockdown. So this explains a lot what has been the consequences because of this policy. The Ebola situation is different because the patient is contagious when he's already in the bed. The COVID-19, the patient is contagious when he's walking. And that's what created the whole spread. And that has a significant impact in how we treat it. And we took one month or more to be able to change the type of policies that were being implemented. And that has created a significant effect today in terms of the consequences. And that's why we are facing today the levels of GDP declines that we have, uh, no matter it is the IMF or the World Bank or the OECD. In all the cases, this is affecting all the countries of the world. And it's because we didn't understood the problem we were facing. And that's something that we need to learn because the next time, need to take a little bit more of a time to figure out what was the type of the problem we were facing and trying to put policies in place that make sense. For example, in many countries, they made a lot of sense to keep some sectors open, especially the capital intensive ones, putting the health, uh, the health protocols in place. But it didn't make any sense to close them the way they were closed. And this is a reality that Latin America, for example, is suffering today. Countries which are declining in minus 14.5% of GDP growth, where we're supposed to be growing, because they even closed the mining sector. And the mining sector is hugely capital intensive and there was no way they would be affected by this. The second one, which I think is also important, is that we had a crisis which was different to the food price crisis, very different. But we did a lot of efforts to try to convince everybody that was the same. And that was another issue that we learned from it. Why it was different? Because this time we had a lot of stocks. It's true that a significant share of the growth in the stocks are, are because of China. But in total, we have significant stocks. Second, we have a very good uh, production here. We have a very good harvest. So there was no scarcity. Despite that, we start to put export restrictions, which now, thanks God, they are out. And we, are, we have the, the mobility of goods across borders. And also, we were ready because we had AMIS, the Agricultural Market Information System, that was able to come up with information of what was the level of stocks and the food availability, which helped to count markets. Also, this is a crisis that was more logistical because of the lockdown. And we need to understand a little bit more about logistics. And that's where we had missing information. We were not prepared to know what was the lockdowns in terms of logistics. We took some time, but we at the end were able to get real time data on mobility of vessels, for example. And the final thing, which is very different, is resilience. This crisis that it was mentioned before show that agricultural sector is resilient to these problems. Thank you. Great, thank you so much, Maximo. Before we come to the second round of questions for the panel, I'd like to remind all of you who are watching that you can submit your brief questions on ifree.org, Facebook, or YouTube, 
and also on Twitter using the hashtag AskIfBree. We'll be coming to the Q&A session uh, shortly. For the second round of questions, I'll ask all of you panelists to look forward. The question is, what key issues are you considering? What should we consider as we look forward? And specifically, what should some of these considerations be for research? You only have about two minutes each, and this time around, I'll start with you, Purnima. All right, thanks. Um, so for me, I, I think looking forward, uh, there's going to be a huge need to put real data and real evidence um, to what we've been predicting and, and starting to see with, with some of the, the modeling uh, work and the, you know, the more sort of sporadic uh, data efforts that that people have been managing to patch together. So I think we need a bit more of an all-out um, research and data effort to understand the breadth and the depth of the of the ways in which the pathways uh, to poorer diets and and nutrition are playing out. And we're especially going to need that where populations are most vulnerable. Um, the second is that that same data effort, in my view, can then help us understand and provide insights on how well the policy responses have been working. I mean, I, I think, like I said earlier, there's been a range of different uh, policy efforts, but we really need to know which ones are working, for what, for whom, and which ones are not working. So, you know, I, I think a sort of systematic and thought through uh, data effort can really, really help us here. Um, and I, and I also say that, you know, we need to continue to stay together. It's really important that policymakers receive um, evidence and, and evidence-based inputs, but also in a common voice, because we don't want policy confusion. We want technical communities to, to work out our disagreements, to be able to speak with a common voice. And, you know, here again, really uh, thrilled that the global nutrition community has come together. Uh, and more recently in, in India as well, you know, there's been a sort of articulated common commitment to action to kind of stay together and, and build, um, you know, bodies of work that really support uh, national, national efforts. So, um, you know, and then last but not least, I think as a global um, development research uh, entities, I think we need to really work very hard with national uh, research communities because um, that's where the action is. It's where policymakers are turning to for answers and, and supportive uh, research to inform policies. So it's really incumbent on the global uh, community and the North to work uh, very well with um, our counterparts in, in low and middle income countries. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Pranima. Apollos? Um, thanks, Katala. I, I think. Um, First of all, we, we need to consider, um, you know, uh, policy responses that are built on credible data, you know, and evidence. Uh, and linked to that, linked to that is we, we need to think about the responses that help the longer term uh, recovery and growth. Um, one of the things that we've seen is that quite a number of uh, the policies that were developed within the first um, three months, you know, of, of the pandemic were short-term, you know, they were more short-sighted in nature. They were only responding to uh, the immediate issues. They were not looking at the medium and longer-term 
um, uh, issues that were coming up. So we need to be much more um, uh, sort of um, futuristic as we as we uh, uh, look at key policy responses that will help countries recover and grow. Um, so and that means we need to link re uh, the immediate response to the recovery and then to the growth going forward. The second is that um, we, we need to consider, um, like I said earlier, the interconnectedness of systems. Uh, and that means that, you know, that um, uh, we, we probably need to take, um, you know, a, a model that sort of supports moving countries or moving uh, systems that are from, from a situation where they are fragile to where they are more sustainable. Um, so uh, a, a, a model that addresses the fragility of these systems is required going forward. And, and, and as such, we need to consider the fact that um, a lot of governments uh, across, uh, particularly in Africa, are now saying they would like to see um, you know, their countries recover and grow uh, through agriculture. You know, and, and we're saying to them, look, the agricultural system is possible, but they need to look at the interconnectedness of these systems. So I think looking at a growth model that supports um, uh, countries to actually develop sustainable food systems, you know, uh, ensure that, you know, the smallholder farmers are not left out, uh, uh, particularly the fact that uh, more than 65% uh, of the smallholder farmers are women. And a lot of these women are uh, are heads of their households, you know, so um, a, a recovery and growth plan should, should not leave these ones uh, behind. Uh, and I think a, a third issue that we should consider going forward is, is the fact that data is now going to become much more important as, as we go forward. And uh, the, 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 the fact that a, a data set has been sort of, you know, signed off by relevant authorities is not uh, synonymous with the fact that that data is credible to, to a certain extent. And, and here's the point. The point is that we, we need to provide better support uh, to ensure that data is credible and that it's not having a negative impact on decisions we're going to make, particularly policy decisions and planning you know, for, for, for recovery. Finally, is um, uh, around, around the fact that we need to think about new partnerships um, uh, because uh, like uh, uh, the last speaker said, uh, we, we, we need to stay together. And that means that we need to rethink our approach to partnerships to ensure that you know, we are we're mobilizing resources, but also using those resources effectively in a way that brings our different strengths together and ensure that we're, 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 we're giving the right support uh, uh, to, uh, to, 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 to the community. I'll Great. leave it there. Thank you. Uh, Pervi, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Katala. I think two points. Number one is, uh, you know, fundamentally the reason we are all in agriculture, fundamentally why the farmers farm or the private sector get interested is because of markets, right? And one of the things we've learned from this and we, we learn is our understanding of markets especially in developing countries, especially in diversified commodities, is really at a very, very nascent stage. And, and therefore, I think much needs to be done to understand the, the market structure, especially the informal market structure, which of course is a predominant market structure in most developing countries, um, market access, 
market maps. We 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 really don't, you know, we we talk about traceability and blockchain and all of that, but we really, you know, have very limited understanding of the the way informal markets work, um, and 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 the kind of resilience, economic resilience markets, uh, the, the potential it holds to to offer that type of resilience, and and hence I think we really need to focus towards understanding. Uh, uh, the markets and how it can play a central role in managing any of the crises, but at the same time offering higher risk mitigation, risk management, risk adaptation capacity of um, the entire value chain, but especially farmers. So I think that was one. And the second thing is, of course, Purnima and Apollo both mentioned about data. I just would like to add that Yes, data gaps is a, is a major issue, but at the same time in many, many developing countries, especially transition economies where there is a lot of data, I think no, lots needs to be done in data interpretation and data use because, you know, data collection or da having data is, is just a means, not an end, and uh, therefore, just just making sure that uh, we we provide enough mechanism for use of data uh, is going to be very important. Great, thank you, Parvi. Maximo. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, uh, three points that I would like to raise. First, uh, the future of food and agriculture will change and will be different, and this crisis mm -hmm. has helped to uh, to accelerate things that were already moving, but not at the velocity we are observing now. One of those issues is automatization and digitalization of agriculture. And that creates a challenge, which is the labor market. And that's where we need to be very concerned because we are not ready and we don't have the human capital, the labor, the, the labor supply ready to respond to that new labor demand, which the automatization and digitalization will create. And that, that poses a big challenge and we need to be ready for that. We need to find ways in which we can accelerate the process of capacity building. The second element on terms of the tools is on the modeling. I think our modeling tools are not ready for what we observe already. One clear example of this is that these modeling exercises don't have a measurement of uncertainty. A measurement of uncertainty, which is basically going to affect all our decisions if we have similar problems. The issues on pests and diseases and, and like COVID-19 will appear again. And our models are not developed to be able to cope with these levels of uncertainty. We are moving into an agriculture that will be an agriculture under uncertainty, huge uncertainties. It's like an options model. So that requires a significant change in the way we model things. And also it's important to put some accountability in the modeling because our modeling don't have any predictive power. That's why we see projections of GDP growth and the next month, oh, we update the projection of GDP growth. And changes are huge between one update and the other. And then we update again the following month. How a policy maker can make a decision based on that? They don't have any predictive power. They just put numbers as they see the things are moving. That is not a useful tool for what we are doing. And all our models in terms of simulation of poor people, in terms of simulation of hungry people are based on those GDP growth projections. So after one month or two months, they are all outdated because the GDP growth change. I understand that there is uncertainty, but it's, it's impossible that this level of, of, the, of, the, of the evolution of the capacity and the power of computers, we cannot have uh, projections with, with, with predictive power. So again, I think all these agencies working on projections of GDP growth and so on and using more needs to be accountable for what they are doing and they need to be more careful in how they put numbers out because it's extremely dangerous. And finally, the last point is inequality. What, what this crisis has really shown to us is the big problem of inequality we have. The problem is for every country in the world, no matter how big or small you are, but the consequences are felt very differently and you can see it in the streets. In the developed countries, they have unemployment insurance. 
They have social security after the unemployment insurance. In developing countries, all of them are informal. They're losing their jobs. They don't have unemployment insurance. And if they have social security, it's very low quality. Developing countries don't have the capacity to do the trillions of dollars of, of chocks that we are seeing to uh, monetary chocks to be able to improve uh, and reactivate economies. Developed countries have that capacity. That's completely problematic and will exacerbate the inequalities. Not only that within countries and within sectors, the, the, the graphs that, that uh, John showed on labor, what we observe on the food systems is that the major jobs affected are on the, on the packaging, on the, on, the process, on, the, on the distribution and so on. Most of those jobs are done by females. And 60% of those jobs are at risk. So we are exacerbating even more inequalities which already exist because they were paid less wages than males in the similar job with the similar characteristics. So again, I think we need to look at this very carefully and for once and for all, we need to focus on how to reduce inequalities in the rural areas so that we can achieve uh, a better future and a better food systems uh, in the following years. Thank you. Great, thank you. And finally, over to you, Michael. Yes, hi. So um, I'm also looking at this from a perspective of the food system and, and resilience on this. Uh, we've probably gone through one of the biggest pressure how the system can respond to changes. And we will, we will be able to learn something of things that actually work well, um, but we will also, and we're seeing already some where things are not. I think we, there's great learnings we can take from that. Um, for instance, I mean, it was already mentioned, Yo mentioned it, is that you know, shutting borders is not a very helpful way to, uh, to, for food security. We've experienced that as a company and had to spend a lot of very, very quick work to actually be able to keep on supplying in those markets. Uh, there will be many more of these. And I think they are not only there now for the moment of, of dealing with you know, this pandemic, uh, there is a bigger issue that I think we all know, scientists are telling us this, is that the way we produce, distribute, and, and you know, produce our food and consume our food is exhausting the resources of the earth. And it is significantly contributing to climate change. A third of all the food produced is lost or wasted. We all know this. And I think in some, case, in some way, the, the learnings we now can take from this particular crisis about how do we improve, how can we all together create a better system, will also help us hopefully on the journey to actually make sure that we can, over time, feed 10 billion people on this planet in a tasty, healthy, nutritious, and far more sustainable equitable way uh, that works for all of us and all use for the direct impact but then also really mapping out how we're changing this for good for the longer term. Great, thank you so much Michael and thank you to all of our panelists. We'll move into our Q&A portion of the program so I'll invite Yo and John to also join us. And the, as we go through these questions, I'll remind our audience to be brief in stating your questions and, and please also include your name and affiliation. And for the, in the interest of time, we may have to consolidate a number of your questions. So apologies in advance. Uh, the first question, Yo, we will direct to you and it is coming from Rajul Pandya Lorch. And it is, how do you see the ag econ profession itself changing to do more relevant or responsive COVID-19 related research? Wow, Rajul, what a difficult question to start with. <clears throat> um, well, I think that a lot of what our, <clears throat> uh, 
colleagues in the panel have just said in terms of uh, uh, what needs to be done for the future. I mean, I think certainly that's uh, things um, they should be thinking about. I think Maximo's point in terms of um, we have to build in uncertainty and risk in our models bet much better, I think that that's a, a really big challenge for them, I think. Okay. And so when I think about when maybe I, the way I think when you think about the agricultural profession, I'm thinking more about the academic side of it. And this is something clearly, I mean, there are models there with, with uncertainty and risk in it, but they're not generally used that much in kind of prediction thing because it just makes <laughs> it makes it very difficult to okay and so basically bringing that in in a way which is both manageable in terms of model use but at the same time making them much more um, <clears throat> much more uh, realistic I think is, is crucial going forward and so the the vulnerability and the resilience has to come in through the, the uncertainty and the risk part of these models and of course then basically making I mean, everything what we were doing before already, going to better uh, basically use RCTs, uh, better empirical work, et cetera. I think all that will, will be um, even more important now. Thank you. Great, thank you, Yo. Our next question is coming in for John and it's coming from Professor Shankar Chatterjee in India. And he's asking, can you, you mentioned several innovations that are being tracked and he's asking if you can please give a few examples. John? Yeah, so um, thank you. So some of the innovations are around um, things like uh, movement control and lockdowns. The, and these have been the ones with the most negative consequences and where we're also tracking kind of citizen responses to them. Um, and these are things that can definitely go wrong and, and Maximo has actually pointed out this problem of kind of balancing the health, the health responses with the social responses and you know, the social justice responses and the economic responses. So, so this is, is one type of critical policy that we're looking at. The other ones are around social safety nets. Uh, we're tracking those, um, fiscal responses, uh, infrastructure, et cetera. So th there's a number. Please, please look at the, um, at the website for the COVID-19 policy response tracker. Uh, I think you'll find it quite interesting in, including the indicators it's looking at. Thank you. Thank you, John. Uh, Pervy, I'll direct the next question to you. And it's, and the person is, it's an anonymous question and they're asking for clarity. Uh, can you explain a bit more you, on what you mean when you said diversified commodities? Uh, what exactly do you mean? You're muted. Yeah, so um, a lot of the experience that we have or evidences we have or the data that we use for policy making and so forth is really limited to, uh, say, if I say South Asia, about eight commodities, right? There is very limited data, very limited evidences from other commodities, such as, for example, the non-cereal commodities or commodities which are not cotton, sugarcane, uh, commodities. So by diversified commodities, I would include horticulture commodities in it. I would include livestock commodity in it, although milk uh, does have little more data than other livestock sector, but there is 
very limited uh, uh, data into those uh, diversified commodities and also very limited in uh, fisheries, for example. So non-cereal um, as far as food is concerned and uh, uh, is, is what I mean by diversified. Does that verify? Yes, thank you so much, Pervi. Maximo, uh, I'll direct this next question to you that's coming from Dahlia. And her question is on how can developing countries leverage finance for investments in agriculture when they are under pressure to boost health expenditures uh, to help face COVID-19? That's a difficult question and it's what they have to face. No? So today, the only way we can keep uh, the value chains operating is increasing the health protocols. Uh, so uh, my, the farmer sector has to invest a little bit more and have to find ways to, to gain efficiencies. So I think the trick at this point is how we can gain more efficiencies. And one of those efficiencies is reduction of losses uh, and in trying to find ways in which you can uh, find coping mechanisms to, to, to fight with the, the different uncertainties that you're going to, to face. So, now, on the other hand, uh, it is important to realize, although we have inequalities, most of the food uh, and most of the food that cross borders, especially fruits and, and meats, because vegetables move very little distances, uh, are produced in developing countries. Uh, and, and that's something that allows us to, to basically have some capacity to, to get financing, to be able to, to continue to produce and to continue to improve. The important thing is that this financing has to be used in investments that will return and have a payback. It shouldn't be used in subsidies. Uh, so we need to find ways in which we can use this financing. The major challenge is the smallholders. And they are the ones facing significant liquidity constraints right now because they don't have access to financial formal financial system. And that's what we have been arguing that is the way in which uh, the central banks can operate by providing guarantees. Uh, so that they will allow them uh, to be able to get loans uh, for with a 12 year, 12 months grace so that they can continue and have the capital, the working capital to continue operating for the next year. But with some conditionalities, for example, delivering what they produce to local markets or to uh, food assistance programs so that this can be distributed. So we have to find innovative ways to get this liquidity, but the smallholders is the one that will be facing the major constraints. Thank you, Maximo. Pranima, a question for you from Nasia Maka. She's a journalist in Zimbabwe. And she's asking what mechanisms can developing countries adopt to help balance food security with nutrition, especially during this pandemic? Um, so uh, there's actually quite, uh, quite a lot of evidence on how um, uh, one, one of the big responses that countries are putting in place, firstly, on in relation to food security is um, social safety net programs. And these safety net programs are either uh, food-based social safety net programs or uh, cash-based uh, social safety net programs. And um, over the many years that uh, researchers at IFPRI and other places have been studying these programs, uh, we know that combining them with, um, uh, with nutrition behavior change, with information campaigns, um, including sort of nutritious commodities in social safety net programs. These are ways to connect efforts that are targeted at food security to be also um, addressing and beginning to address at least the, um, uh, the nutritional uh, challenge. Uh, so there's tons of available research on this, on making these kinds of programs uh, nutrition sensitive. And it's really, really, really important uh, that 
you know, we don't do maybe what people were doing 10 or 15 years ago, but that today, even as people are designing programs to address the food security uh, challenge, that they're doing so with a nutrition uh, sensitivity or nutrition improvement lens in place. Thank you. Thank you, Pranima. And Michael, coming to you, uh, you, you talked about food waste and one of our questions coming in is about the fact that cross-border food distribution has really been restricted during COVID and that has led to waste. How do we ensure the flow of food movement and its accessibility? That's a good question and it really is one of the things that um, as a company we, we did struggle with. Um, when borders are closed there is very little we can do. I mean uh, transport gets stopped. Uh, while at the same time, um, and it could be finished goods, but it could also be ingredients that get stopped at the border. And, and in a number of cases, they are perishable and they will go to waste. Now, I think um, if, if we were able to, to deal with these in a, in a free trade environment that we had before the crisis, um, we wouldn't have had those issues. And I think it really is up to you know, the entire system and also the policymakers really to have a review uh, at what are those in interventions that were taken that were effectively then leading to a benefit that they expected, but also which of those um, for the next time we probably need to look at a different way to address the issues. Um, from a company perspective, there is the only thing we were able to do is look for alternative ways. And in many cases, uh, we then started looking at producing the, the products inside the country with local ingredients. These things do take time if you don't have it already set up. Um, and some of these things will stay um, because, you know, as part of also building our resilience, we will find a balance between the two. But again, it's a system approach where all, everybody needs to be aware of that, what the impact is that if you do it on one side, we'll have on the other side, be transparent about it and then look for the, the best outcome for, for the total system. Thank you, Michael. Apollo's coming to you. We have a question from Nishesh Singh, and they're asking about the, how the pandemic will impact the UN SDG goals of zero hunger by 2030. Uh, do you think it's still a feasible aim and what's the role you were talking about data? Does that play in us um, moving toward those goals? How far on or off are we? Uh, great, thanks. Um, I mean, that's a very important question. Um, I think, uh, first of all, let's, let's be very clear. It's still possible to achieve zero hunger by 2030. Um, uh, we, we have a decade to go. Uh, data will continue to play a critical role in, in achieving that. And what we then need to do is to look at models that will make sure that we have a process uh, that sort of verifies and validates data, as well as interpret them for policy decisions going forward. Um, I think a second thing is um, uh, it, the, the impact is there, you know, don't, no doubt. I mean, for example, the World Bank has said, you know, that um, 100 million more people, you know, um, uh, are, are gonna get hungry as a result of this. Um, if Pre's research, you know, uh, says 140 million, um, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the IMF as well as you know, FAO have also come up with, with the figures, with their own figures. And these, these, are not, um, these are not just figures. These are people. These are people. These are women. These are children. These are uh, people living with disability, you know. So, so beyond the statistics, looking at these people is important. Uh, and 
uh, while that will have an impact in the short term, our ability to recover from that is critical going forward. And how can we recover? One is we need to improve the, our data processing and interpretation. Two is to ensure that investments are driving growth. And three is to uh, consider stronger strategic partnerships that brings everyone together you know, uh, to, to, to deal with this and achieve zero hunger. Uh, thank you, Apollos. Uh, I will come to you, John. We have a question for Betty, from Betty at the Rockefeller Foundation. She notes that the book highlights that there's uh, people not consuming chicken due to perceptions of the linkages to COVID-19. And what can be done is being done to change some of these associations um, on how COVID-19 is being spread. Hmm. Yes, thank you. So, so this isn't unique to COVID-19. I think in most kind of emerging zoonotic diseases that I've been involved with in my career, uh, whether it's Rift Valley fever or other things, we've seen changes in livestock consumption uh, related to the pandemic. Um, and it's not an unusual thought. Um, what's more concerning, I think, with the spread of ideas in social media, media and, and Michael related to this, is the kind of demand and, and the opportunity people see for spreading incorrect information and stuff like that. And we see it all over the place, sadly. Um, so, so I think just getting out the message trying to emphasize to people, you know, what are legitimate facts what, and what we don't know, to be very transparent, super transparent about all these things is critical. What are the uncertainties? Um, because I don't think even, you know, as, as researchers uh, or technical people, we, we don't have all the answers and we shouldn't pretend that we're always experts to do that. So, so that's part of, that's, I think that's a big part of it. Um, and, and I think we shouldn't be surprised by it and just try and counteract it. Great, thank you, John. And Yo, the final question for you is coming from Floor Henderson at City University in New York. And she's asking that in view of this current crisis, how can we educate future professionals on food systems? What is the role of the academic community in helping us better prepare for these environments and the people who will be responding to future crises? Thank you. The, um, I think the answer there is, the, is a bit of the lessons that came out, I think, out of the discussion today as well. I think it's crucial to, uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry. First of all, it's crucial, I think, to be aware of the vulnerability of our system much more than we have been doing for the past 10 or 15 years. And so that needs to be built in in our thinking about the systems. And that may lead to the different optimality uh, outcomes, if you want, and preferred solutions. I think that's pretty clear. I think the role of data, evidence-based policy came out very strongly from the discussions. Almost everybody here has said it. This is also, it's a job for us to move forward to in our basically second, our next phase of analysis that we at IFPRI do and, and our colleagues. But I think this is true in general for certain as well. And I think we have to think much harder in terms of, of resilience and um, go, go beyond the slogans, go beyond the simplistic arguments. For example, there's a lot of discussion now about uh, local change versus global change and things like that. And I think they're the answers about what has been resilient, what not is much more nuanced and much more complicated than the simplistic arguments that are being thrown around. Um, the point, for example, on um, and what Maximo made on the implications for the labor market, I think, are huge. Okay, so you have to think beyond just, okay, what's happening in the food system itself, but beyond all these things and think through in terms of the technology use, 
institutional organization, etc. So there's a huge amount of work left to be done to, to, to understand things better. And that means to come to a better system and better policies to, to support these systems. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Yo. We had so many questions that have come in that we were unable to get to. And so I'd like to thank a few of the persons who've submitted questions, including Paul Dale, Deepak Sharmer, Mary Beth Motoshem, Eileen Kennedy, uh, Hassan Wasaf, Pratisha, and many others. At this point, I would like to now turn it over to our keynote speakers, Yo and Yo Swinnon and John McDermott, who will give us concluding remarks. John, I'll start with you. <clears throat> uh, thank you, Katarla. Can you hear me? Um, yeah. Um, so reflecting kind of on the first six months, um, it's uh, COVID has been devastating. I think there's no question about that. And the responses that we've had in this kind of shock phase um, haven't really eliminated the disease risk. And in terms of overall human welfare, sustainability, um, et cetera, um, we've made some improvements, but in some cases we've made things worse. And so um, I think it's really urgent that we up our game in terms of systematic learning, which is both challenging, but also exciting for us in the research community. And so I see this as a, as a great challenge um, and, and uh, one we need to step up to. So, so what's next? Um, and I would really like to, to thank the colleagues we've had on the panel and the questions and other things, because we're getting a lot of good insights, additional insights into kind of what's this rethinking we need to do um, and kind of accelerated rethinking, if you wish, um, more systematic to get things done. And I just wanted to highlight on the policy thing two, two points. One is it's really key that we get these balancing between the sectors. Uh, what are we saying on the health side? What are we saying on the social development side? What are we saying on the economic development side to get, to get those right and joined up? Um, that's that's going to be crucial to balance that. And, and there's a lot of nuance that we have to understand to do that, as you've heard today. The second thing is we need to be much more radical about how we think about approaches to equity and inclusion. That's clear. Um, and um, these things have to be centered on community empowerment. We have to look at the relationships and connections between different people, men, women, disadvantaged groups, and really change the nature of how we support um, those left behind. That's going to be critical. So over to you, Yo. Thank you very much, uh, John and Katarla and, and all the speakers and, and panel uh, panelists. I thought this was, uh, as John already mentioned, this was hugely useful for us. Um, I kind of already um, made my final com uh, remarks in responding to the last question and then John took a couple of my points off so I have uh, maybe I'll just make one additional point here which is really on if you think about the future food systems okay and this is something which comes out when I talk to, to uh, a lot of people also I think Michael made it most explicitly today is like our foods we are introducing innovations now in the food system also in very poor countries which uh, we had not thought of being or we I mean the private sector mostly because most of this is done by small companies and large companies 
uh, not expected for the next 20 years, and we're doing it in, in six months or a year, okay? And this has huge implications, right? And uh, Maxima also referred to it, the role of digitalization, of automatization. So, so that means that off the farm, okay, we're gonna need very different people than we have today. And that also means this has huge poverty uh, inequality implications because what do poor people have, as I mentioned already, is their physical labor, okay? But typically it's unskilled physical labor, which means this is the type of labor which will be required less in the future. So we first, we probably need to invest heavily in education to make them fit for this new uh, system. And at the same time, we may also think about reorganize, reorganizing systems, institutional innovations, organizational innovations, to still make use of, of low-skilled labor in uh, poor environments. I think a bit of the good news there is that our smallholder uh, agricultural system, smallholder farm, has held up better than we expected. And part of it is because it is relying on family labor, which has been less constrained by uh, social distancing. So with that, uh, I have one final comment, and it was triggered by the first question I got, and that is that we should uh, emphasize, we should also uh, maybe explicitly mention here that the book was dedicated to Rajul, to Rajul Panya Lorch. Uh, Rajul has made huge contributions to IFPRI. She was very important in getting our all of our activities in COVID started, including the virtual events, the blogs, and um, this series and the book as well. But she unfortunately retired before the book was published. So as a punishment for asking her, for asking me a very difficult question, I'm actually making this explicit. So Rajul, thanks very much for everything we did and we are more than honored to honor to dedicate this book to you. Over to you, Katara. Thank you, Yo. And thank you to all of our keynote speakers and our panelists and to you, our audience, for joining us for this book launch event. And just a reminder that the full text is freely available for download on our website, so please share it. And we invite you to join us next Tuesday, August 11th at 9.30 a.m. EDT for our seminar COVID, on COVID-19's short-term impacts on economies, food systems, and poverty in African and Asian countries. It will look at economy-wide economy estimates from economy-wide models. And with that, I'd like to thank you again for joining us and until next time.